as we look back over the past week and over the past few days, and, and maybe for some of you, even this morning, I, I wonder how many of us would say that uh, things didn't go just the way that we planned. As we've looked back over the, the past year, some, something we're, we're learning in the, in the pandemic is that things often don't go as we plan. We're familiar with those, those words from James where he says, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. But we've had numerous opportunities to, to put those words into practice recently. I'm stating the obvious this morning when I say I'm not Daniel. Um, he's not able to be here this morning and, and wanted me to express his apologies for, for not being here, but uh, he's a household member who has COVID, and so he's going to need to be, be away this morning. As we think about, as we think about the pandemic, often uh, we, we will say things like, uh, we're, we're longing for, we're looking forward to the time when, when everything can be normal again. And while we understand the sentiment behind that, uh, our prayer would be that as we return to normal, it's not just the way things were, but that we as God's people would, would remember the lessons that he's teaching us during these difficult days. I've mentioned James already this morning, and though we're not going to be talking about that verse in particular, we are going to spend our time in James uh, chapter 3. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3, we're going to look together at verses 13 through 18. And as you turn there, we remember that, that James is writing this, this letter to a group of, of believers who've been scattered likely because of the persecution that has arisen uh, against the church in, in the middle of the first century. And as we read through the book of James, we, we see that James has a particular concern for genuine, authentic faith. James teaches us that the believer's life should be consistent with his profession of faith. He says we should be hearers of the word and not, we should be doers of the word and not hearers only. In other words, he's teaching us, James is teaching us that the genuineness of our faith is, is manifested or made known in its outworking in our lives. And in the passage we're going to look at here this morning, we're going to see another example of this call for genuineness here related to wisdom. What is true wisdom? James draws a distinction between wisdom from above, and we might say wisdom from below, or earthly wisdom. There's a distinction between true wisdom and false wisdom. And so as we seek to understand the nature of true wisdom by asking the question, what is true wisdom? We'll also ask the applicational question, am I wise? What is the nature of true wisdom? And am I wise? These questions and their answers are important for us. How so? 
because they help us evaluate the genuineness of our faith. Does my lifestyle match my profession? If we claim to be wise, does my lifestyle say the same? We will see that true, true wisdom is, is more than mere head knowledge. It's the application of that knowledge in our daily living. And God in his kindness, God in his kindness has revealed to us the nature of true wisdom. And what we will see in these verses is that by examining my own heart and the fruit of my life, I can know if I am truly wise. By examining my heart and the fruit of my life, I can know if I am truly wise. So if you're able, I would invite you to stand in honor of God. We're going to read from James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 and reading through verse 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You can be seated. Father, we are here this morning as a people needy. We're needy for you. We need to know what true wisdom is, and we thank you that in your kindness and in your mercy, you've, you've told us. And so we pray for hearts that are tender this morning, that we would receive your truth with joy for the sake of your name. Amen. Scripture places a great value on wisdom. We often think of Solomon when we think about wisdom, and it's right that we do so. Solomon, the wise man, it was Solomon who wrote these words in the book of Proverbs, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. Wisdom is essential for us if we are to navigate life in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And we would, we would recognize there are no shortage of opportunities for us to put this into practice to practice wisdom. This section begins with James addressing his audience with a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Apparently there were some who, who claimed to be wise and to have understanding, but James wasn't so sure. And so he answers the question with a command. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Here we see the call for those who would claim to be wise to consider their lives. 
and see if in fact their lives give evidence of their possessing true wisdom. The first thing to note is that true wisdom is made evident through good works done in meekness. True wisdom is made evident through good works done in meekness. Who is wise and understanding among you? These two words, wise and understanding, they're similar. They they both have to do with the application of knowledge. When we think of wisdom, we often think of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is considered wisdom literature. And in this book, we see see the subject of, of wisdom expounded in great detail. For example, in Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, we read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here is some insight for us into what it means to be wise. When a person fears the Lord, that person acknowledges his place of submission and dependence upon God. And at the same time, recognizes, acknowledges God's place of authority in his life. And this affects the way the person lives. And this is James' point in verse 13. There's a knowledge of God and of one's circumstances before God and then an application of that knowledge in daily living. We might think of a wise person as one who has the ability to accurately evaluate a circumstance and then to respond to that circumstance in a way that pleases the Lord. One cannot say that he's wise and then have no evidence of this wisdom in his life. We're reminded of Paul's words in Ephesians 5, where he says in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. In other words, look carefully how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time for the days are evil. So a wise person, a wise person is one who fears the Lord and is able to evaluate a situation and then respond in a way that honors God. But what about understanding? It's similar. This word means to know something, that is to be knowledgeable, to be an expert about something. And then, to be able to put that knowledge into useful practice. So to be wise and understanding is is not merely to, to possess the knowledge in our head, but the ability to apply that knowledge in a skillful way in daily living. And according to James, the evidences that one is wise and understanding are the good works the person does in meekness. Again, James is concerned about genuineness. He labors throughout this letter. He labors to communicate that there must be an understanding that a person cannot merely give lip service to God and consider himself to be a genuine believer. Rather, the fruit, the fruit of his life must demonstrate that his heart has indeed been transformed by the Spirit of God. James speaks rather directly. 
At the end of chapter one, he says, we must not be hearers only, but doers of the word. And our doing of the word gives evidence that we have indeed been changed, that our faith is genuine. We learn that that genuine faith is, is manifested, is made known, for example, in our care for the orphan and the widow. In chapter 2, we're warned of the sin of partiality and how this, this sin is it's inconsistent with the royal law that says we must love our neighbor as ourself. Chapter 2 continues, we learn about faith, that faith without works is dead. James isn't teaching salvation by works, not at all. He's simply stating that true faith is, is manifested by works. And then in chapter 3, we see that with the tongue, we can, we can bless God and curse people who are made in the image of God. And James says, this is, this is inconsistent. There's a concern for what is true and what is genuine. And in the passage we have before us, we see that true wisdom is made evident. True wisdom is made evident through good works done in meekness. He says the meekness of wisdom. Meekness could be translated gentleness. It's been defined in this way. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. The meekness of wisdom, the way that that James has put these words together, teaches us that that, uh, meekness has as its source wisdom. So remember we said wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, acknowledging our position before him, acknowledging his, his authority in our lives. The fear of the Lord it's the beginning of wisdom. There's this thing we have called wisdom. And, and out of wisdom flows meekness. Meekness has as its source wisdom. And a person who rightly fears the Lord is not impressed with his own self-importance, but instead responds with meekness, first to God and then to others. Here's what one writer says about meekness. He says, the exercises of it, that is of meekness, the exercises of it are first and chiefly toward God. It is that temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. This has very practical application for us in our daily living. We humbly accept God's dealings with us as good. In our sickness and in our health, in loss and in gain, in sadness and in celebration, in the circumstances in our past, the circumstances we find ourselves in currently 
and the circumstances in the future that we're unaware of, we accept God's dealings with us as good. It's all bound up in his character. The all-wise, all-knowing God. The sovereign one who has said he's working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Job understood this. After Job's wife told him to curse God and die, Job responded, Shall we receive good from God and not evil? In all this, Job didn't sin with his lips. This meekness is not directed only to God, but it's directed to others. And it's, it's made known in our gentle disposition towards others. We deal kindly with one another. We hear Paul in Galatians. Remember Paul in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. How? In a spirit of gentleness. Or in Ephesians, he says, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. Was it not our Lord himself who embodied meekness? Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So as we strive to understand the nature of true wisdom, we note first positively that that. Wisdom, true wisdom, is made evident through good works done in meekness. Sometimes it's helpful as we're seeking to understand a thing to say what it's not. And so secondly, we can say negatively, true wisdom, true wisdom is not selfish. Please look with me at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. It seems as if some to whom James was writing, uh, some consider themselves to be wise, and and yet their lies didn't attest to this supposed wisdom. James makes clear that if a person has bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in his heart, that person is not a wise person. The command is, don't boast about your so-called wisdom. A person in this condition lies. Why? Because he thinks he's wise, but the bitter jealousy and the selfish ambition in his heart betray the true condition of the heart. The concern is for what's happening in the heart. We must start here. When we began, we said that by examining my heart, 
and the fruit of my life, I can know if I'm truly wise. Our actions begin in the heart. The Lord said in Mark chapter 7 and verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile the person. The concern is for what's going on in the heart. Maybe many of you have, have seen the illustration. Right? You, there, there's a, a water bottle like and you remove the cap and the water bottle is shaken and water spills out onto the floor and the question is asked, why did water spill on the floor? And the answer that's often given is because you shook the bottle. To which the person replies, water spilled out of the bottle because water is what was inside. It's an illustration to show us that we get, when we get rattled, when we're shaken, what's inside inevitably will come out. James is concerned about the heart. If we went on just a bit further into chapter 4, he asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war where? Within you? He cuts to the heart, and so we acknowledge that the desires we have come from the heart. We do what we do. You're saying it, aren't you? Because we want what we want. And though we may experience some some temporary success in, in covering up what's truly going on in the heart, eventually the truth becomes evident. And when bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are in the heart, chaos and evil are sure to follow, says James. What does James say about this this kind of wisdom? He says this kind of supposed wisdom is, is not from God. It's earthly. It's spiritual, unspiritual. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Notice the progression earthly, unspiritual, or natural, demonic. To think in an earthly way is to think on a horizontal level. It's to think about things from a human perspective. It has as its focus the self and what's immediately in front of a person. We might think it, say it's, it's short-sighted. But not only is it earthly, it's unspiritual. It's natural. This in contrast to what is spiritual. Again, Paul says the natural person, the natural person does not understand the things of God. They're folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Earthly, unspiritual, and then demonic. James tells us that the heart from which these sins arise is actually a demon-like heart. When a person has envy in the heart, he's acting in a way consistent with the demons. True wisdom is not selfish. 
bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, they're the opposite of the humility that characterizes true wisdom. And where these things exist, there will be disorder. There will be evil practices. Is this not the logical conclusion? When every person is insisting on his own way, there's disorder. There's chaos. This is not characteristic of our God. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. When people are envious of one another, preferring themselves over others, evil practices are sure to follow. Here, we see the word of God sharp, like a scalpel. It, it exposes us. It cuts us. It lays open our heart, lest we think that we can harbor bitter envy, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and think that things will be okay. Lest we think that pursuing our own end will lead to unity, James teaches us that true wisdom is not selfish. And so we ask ourselves, is there, is there bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition in my heart? It begins here. It's internal. The issue is at a, at a heart level, and so we must address it as such. And the only hope for a heart weighed down with jealousy and selfish ambition is the blood of Christ. And so if we're convicted by the sins described, what do we do? We run to him. We run to our Savior, the one who alone can cleanse. We repent and we believe that his blood is sufficient to wash us clean. We turn to our God and, and we confess our sins and then we trust in his cleansing work. We believe what he says, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We look to the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. We remember that we've been purchased by the blood of Christ. We've been brought together. We've been made one with him and with one another through his blood We've been united as brothers and sisters. We must not be envious of one another. For when we envy one another and insist our, on our own way, the witness of the transforming power of God in our lives is compromised. We must not go on boasting over this so-called wisdom. It's not wisdom at all. So we see that, that true wisdom is not selfish. Rather, and finally, what we see is that true wisdom is from above. True wisdom is from above. 
the, the method, method that James uses here to describe wisdom is to tell us first its source, first its source, then what it consists of, before finally showing us the result. He says, true wisdom is from above. To say that a thing is from above is a way to say it's from God. He's already made this connection back in chapter 1 and verse 17 where he says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So true wisdom is God-given wisdom. True wisdom has as its source God. This is in contrast to the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. The wisdom from above is first, James says, pure. It's pure. Most understand that uh, this virtue of purity to be the, the source of the other virtues that flow from it. A pure thing is, is, is a thing without blemish. We, we hear the words of the psalmist. He's, he's describing the word of God in this way. In Psalm 12, he says, the words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The picture here is, is that of, of refining. It's refining this precious metal to produce only what is pure. This wisdom that comes down from God is pure. Free from the impurities of selfishness and envy and gossip and slander and things like this. Having pure motives for doing a good work is an outworking of the Spirit of God in our lives. Not only is it pure, but, but wisdom from above is also peaceable or peace-loving. Again, Proverbs 3 and verse 17, speaking about, about wisdom, says, Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. How refreshing. Wisdom from above is, is pure, peace-loving. It's gentle or considerate. Again, we see in our Lord the perfect example of gentleness. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Will you take a moment and ask yourself, do you believe this about your Savior? Do you believe that he is gentle toward you? He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Are we not made gentle by God's grace? The more we come to know our beloved Savior and his perfect holiness, 
the more we experience his daily forgiveness and cleansing for our wandering from him, the more we understand the glory of the cross and the way in which we were redeemed and made whole, the more gentle we become. Can we who've received grace upon grace upon grace continue to be harsh toward others? James would tell us this is inconsistent. Do you know a gentle person? Perhaps you're thinking of him or her even now. Someone who sits with you, is concerned about your well-being, listens intently, responds with the right words at the right time, would we not say a gentle person is a wise person? Wisdom from above is also open to reason. It's compliant. One translation says, willing to yield. A person who recognizes his condition before a holy God approaches all of life and conversations with others with an attitude that is willing to yield. Willing to defer to another's desires instead of his own. This is not a spineless attitude that's Uh, unwilling to take a stand for truth. Rather, it speaks of an attitude of humility brought about by the change in one's heart by the work of the Spirit. Our Lord told us, Paul told us, about the Lord, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Consider the conversations you've been a part of recently. Or conversations you're planning to be a part of even today. Will you, by God's grace, be open to reason? Will you be willing to yield to others? This principle is especially important for us as we interact with one another in the church. But it moves beyond the walls of the church into our homes, into our neighborhoods. Are we willing to yield? I think about us as husbands. Husbands, Are we willing to yield to our wives? Are we open to hearing from them when she has something to share with us? Perhaps it's an observation about the way we're interacting with our kids. Are we open to hearing? Are we willing to yield? This is true wisdom, says James. Wisdom from above is is full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. 
To be impartial is to withhold favoritism. Apparently, this was a concern for some of the readers because James has already addressed this. Here we see that wisdom from above, wisdom that is pure, is not tainted by partiality. It's impartial and sincere. It's a way to say it's trustworthy. A wise person is a peaceful person. And the result of a life of pursuing peace, James says, is a harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness. It's it's a fruitful, God-pleasing life, both for the peacemaker and for those with whom he lives. He's speaking here of an abundant spiritual life. True wisdom is indeed from above. All this talk of wisdom must point us to Christ. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus, the embodiment of true wisdom. And as we think about these virtues that accompany true wisdom, we're quick to acknowledge that these aren't something we produce on our own. Rather, true wisdom is the result or the the fruit of trusting in Christ. So we end where we begin. What is true wisdom? What's the nature of true wisdom? True wisdom is from above. It's not selfish. And it's made evident through good works done in meekness. Wisdom comes from the Lord And we are made wise as we put our trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. You've given us your word and you've given us your spirit. And so we pray that you would make us wise. That we would acknowledge in humility our dependence on you. That we would be gentle people we would meekly accept your dealings with us as good and right. And we would love one another. Thank you for your kindness. In Christ's name, amen.